This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello, I'm Jake Cantor and welcome to Talking TV. On the podcast this week, as the sun sets on ITV's daybreak debacle, a new dawn is rising. Hear about Helen Warner's plans for Good Morning Britain. Later in the show, writer Sarah Phelps drops by to discuss BBC One's first world war drama, The Crimson Field. She'll also tell us about adapting J.K. Rowling's novel, The Casual Vacancy. And sticking with the scripted stuff, we have previews of ITV's new John Sim drama, Prey, and BBC One's studio sitcom, Monks. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Here at Maple Street Studios this week is Faraz Osman, the creative director of multi-platform indie Lemonade Money. How's business, Faraz? Good, actually. Things are things picking up. We're looking for some new offices. If anybody out there wants to You're do You're not a... moving out of Shoreditch, are you? That's we your can't... hipster home, Shoreditch. Uh, we can't... <laughs> can't possibly say. Anywhere that can a fixie bike can get us to is, is what we're looking for. <laughs> uh, also with us is uh, Peter White, a broadcast international star. You're jetting off to China this weekend, aren't you? Tell us about that. I am, I am. I'm doing a, doing a week, uh, week-long trip with Pact and, uh, and people include David Abraham at Channel 4. We're basically going on a big coach trip to China, so we're going to, uh, going to see how it works over there. Coach trip is in like the Channel 4 format. Exactly. <laughs> is exactly. that you're going to be voted off exactly. throughout if you, if you don't pick up shows in China. Exactly. Whoever doesn't do a deal gets kicked off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, broadcast ratings guru and former ITV scheduler Stephen Price is with us uh, to talk Good Morning Britain. Thanks for coming in, Stephen. Thank you for asking me. Good morning. Is, is it all good otherwise? All is great, thank you very much, yes. Good. Okay, well, we'll crack on with the first item. So, it's lights off for daybreak next Monday as ITV puts the breakfast show out of its misery after three and a half years. In its place, the commercial broadcaster will launch Good Morning Britain as it aims to claw back the vital audience share that Daybreak and GMTV squandered. Good Morning Britain won't launch with the same fanfare as its predecessor, but it will be a brand spanking new proposition, complete with a fresh presenting lineup, including, of course, former BBC Breakfast host Susanna Reid. The show will be unashamedly news led and draw inspiration from US namesake Good Morning America. But that's enough from me. Here's ITV Director of Daytime Helen Warner detailing her plans. Obviously, our aim is to grow the audience. We wouldn't be doing it if we weren't yeah. hoping to grow the audience. But we're in it for the long game. And we know it's going to take time to do that thing of changing those incredibly entrenched habits. Completely throwing the baby out with the bathwater is a mistake. And I think even though Daybreak hasn't always resonated with viewers, there are definitely things from Daybreak that we want to take forward into Good Morning Britain. And so that's the biggest lesson, is kind of don't trash everything that's gone before. Take what's worked with you and build on it. Stephen, is change necessary, do you think? Is this, uh, is this the right decision from ITV? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, um, Daybreak has never recovered from its uh, the slump at the start. The, one of the key metrics at that time of the day are the Housewives of Children audience, which advertisers buy. Although the good news is that the share has stopped going down. It is still considerably... It's around about uh, 21 and a half share, which is... Uh, the decline has stopped. But just to put a bit of context... The last full year of GMTV in 2009, it was at 31. That's five years ago, but it's still a significant decline. It was always well ahead of BBC Breakfast and that front, whilst behind on volume. And that's not, you know, that's not a bad trade-off, really, because that's about revenue. Uh, but what's happened in Daybreak is that it got behind on the key Housewives of Children and also the uh, total audience. So what do you think the issue was with Daybreak? Just looking back at the time when Daybreak launched, I think the sort of 
the mistake that was made was that it was rather dissed GMTV too quickly. I mean, GMTV, was, there was some decline. There's no question that they would be the first to admit it. Uh, but it wasn't precipitous, um, certainly not compared to what happened since. Just from a viewer's point of view, they didn't know that ITV had bought 25% of the Disney share and they weren't expecting, a, I don't think, a, such a radical change. And they left. You know, BBC One, without doing very much, its share has grown. Because if you want sort of news, um, that's where you go to get it. So, And GMTV was a sort of, you know, uh, horoscopes and prime minister sort of approach. And that worked. So to just to diss it, I think, was also was slightly disrespectful to the audience, if I'm honest. And uh, they repaid that by leaving. By leaving, yeah. In the clip, we heard Helen saying that she doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But it does sound like the change is going to be quite radical. We'll see, I suppose, uh, on, on Monday. If it's radical in that it reverts a little bit back to what GMTV was like, then that's, that's fine. If it's another sort of move on from uh, the news-driven agenda that Daybreak tried to establish, then that might be more difficult. But, you know, Helen's been, uh, been around. She knows this world and she will have seen uh, the mistakes that were made and she'll know about GMTV and she'll understand that audience better, one would hope. And we're hearing it's going to be a big desk with the, all four presenters sat behind it, including Susanna, yeah. uh, which would be very similar to Good Morning America. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to break out and do interviews on a couch, apparently. Uh, I'm sure, yeah. I mean, all this stuff is sort of, you know, uh, trial and error, I suspect, to try and re-establish that audience. I mean, I noticed in the interview in 2010... With Alison Sharman. Alison Sharman, yes. Her, her inspiration was the NBC's Today programme. Yeah. Uh, OK. Uh, so, <laughs> that... Didn't work, but the fact is that Daybreak has sort of, you know, has got to quite a low level. So um, if anybody watched the Battle of a Breakfast TV um, documentary a couple of weeks ago, which was a bit alarming, uh, but it was very funny, is that, uh, you know, Greg Dyke on TVM saying, we tried everything because no one was watching. No, I'm not saying that's where we are now, but it might be that uh, Good Morning Britain can have a little bit more leeway to try stuff, to try and recover the audience. But the key thing is it mustn't lose any more Housewives of Children because that is the revenue base. So do you think that's the benchmark for success, growing the audience? Um, yeah, there'll be, this, you know, there's the irritating uh, pride thing of losing out to BBC Breakfast uh, in volume. But surely that's a battle loss now, isn't it? Well, it'll be extremely difficult. I mean, it's half the audience, so it's extremely difficult to get that back in a you know a massively competitive environment, two or three hundred channels on, you know, digital networks going on. So it's extremely difficult. But they, you know, in terms of the things that advertisers buy, impacts. You know, ITV has to have a total number of impacts every day, and this is a big slug of airtime in the morning, which has to contribute to that. So they'll need to grow the general audience for. ITV overall, uh, but in a sort of more micro way, they need to in, uh, to develop that Housewives of Children audience to, de- uh, to maintain the revenue. Faraz, are you a, a breakfast TV fan? The thing that popped into my head was Rise. Wasn't that a big desk with four presenters behind it? Yeah, it was. It? That was Channel 4, wasn't it? Channel 4 after the big breakfast. It's, uh, <laughs> Which launched it's... the careers of Colin Murray and Edith Bowman. And... Did it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it did. Well, well, let's hope it does the same here. I, I, the only thing I would say is, I think what Nick Owen said was very interesting about how if you employ incredibly expensive produce, presenters and then put them behind a the desk and expect loads of people to flock to them, sometimes it can backfire massively. And I think that that's a really, really interesting point to see how audience take to Susanna now yeah. that she now they know her pay packet could be the Christine Bleakley effect Possibly. although it's reported that she's going to earn a million pounds ITV is sort of furiously backpedalling and saying that's not true I, I but it's out there it's out there it doesn't really matter does exactly, it exactly exactly if the audience kind of I mean I don't I think the, the figure is is almost arbitrary the fact that she's going to be paid an enormous pay packet and then expect you to 
sit with her in the morning while she talks to you about how it is to be a, a housewife and and the day to day trials and tribulations of of going through British life. It's it feels like there's a bit of a disconnect there in yeah. alienation. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Definitely, Stephen. I know you've got a dash, but thank oh, you for okay. joining us. No, no, thank you for asking me. So from breakfast TV to something your kids might enjoy in the morning. Yes, Pact has uh, launched a campaign in a bid to secure tax breaks for live action children's programming. The trade body is working up an economic report aimed at convincing the government that extending current TV tax reliefs will encourage channels like CITV, Disney and Nickelodeon to commission more content. Uh, Pete, you've been working on this one. Uh, what are the chances of this happening, do you think? It looks very good. It looks very good. It, obviously, the animation tax break came in a, about a year ago. Pact is sort of suggesting that the Treasury uh, thinks it was a good idea. So our open to doing this for other types of, of programming. And the, the live-action kids' business needs a, needs a boost. As you say there, with, with all of those channels sort of not really commissioning a lot of live-action, uh, the idea being that if they can get a stimulus, can get a break, then, then they will. And I think that uh, they're very hopeful that it'll happen before the next general election. Really? That, that soon? Yeah. Uh, how will it work? Will it cover all genres? Is that Yes, it will cover comedy, drama, factual entertainment, anything basically that isn't animation. What do the producers make of it? Because you've been chatting to a few this week. Yeah, the indies are, are really pleased. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk that, that they have to go film stuff elsewhere or they have to go scramble around for, for money. There was a, a good example. Um, Genevieve Dexter, who now runs a, a company called Serious Lunch, is working on Horrible Science, which is a spin-off of Horrible Histories. And she was saying they're sort of having to, to go and look at filming in Ireland if they because there is no break. And if there is a break, then they'll be able to film it in the UK. So things like that will, will certainly make a difference. And they really welcome this and, and hope that... that that can come through sooner rather than later. But this is specifically aimed at channels that aren't the BBC, basically, well, because basi- they can't fully fund content. Basically, CBBC and CBBS are the only two channels that do live-action kids programming with a, a very small portion of the other networks. So they're hoping that the American channels, whether it's Disney and, and Nickelodeon, can come back into that game and, and hopefully sort of do the same for, for Channel 5 and, and CITV, um, because at the moment, it's, as I say, the BBC is the only place for, for only home for this. For us, UK is going to become a, a tax break haven, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I cut my teeth in children's television, so I think this is a this is great news. I think that kids' TV offers both behind the scenes and in front of the camera an opportunity to do some really interesting creative things. So any way of, of expanding on that is a really good thing. And I think that it's good to see that these tax breaks are going beyond scripted content. It felt like with the animation breaks and the drama breaks, it's it's the factual people are kind of left out in the cold slightly. So this might be a bit of a sea change to see more of a push back into the recognition of, of format selling internationally, which is what we used to be really good at. And hopefully a return of live and kicking and SMTV and Where did you TMI. cut your teeth? I worked at CBBC for, for a good four or five years so and actually didn't ever work on any commercial children's stuff. There's been a massive change in, in children's television with, with it not being on on the main terrestrial channels anymore and having its own own digital spaces, which is a good thing because, you know, you feel like kids have got their own space. But when it comes to building brands, that suffered. And as a result, it's good to see that there's a correction of that. And, and hopefully it will, will lead to some really creative ideas that we can sell internationally, which is which is good for the country. It's good for producers. It's, it's good for everybody involved. So... I highly endorse it. On that rallying call, we'll move on. Uh, finally, drumroll please. It's Talking TV's Commission of the Fortnight. Uh, not for the first time, we head over to Horse Ferry Road, where Channel 4 has ordered an interactive documentary on the NHS. Uh, the Cost of Living will invite viewers to give their opinion on whether a group of patients should receive treatment or not. 
The four-part series is the first commission for Sanjay Singhal's Voltage TV. Uh, Faraz, on the face of it, this sounds like it could be quite controversial, but uh, it's, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, Sanjay's great and it's great to see him back. And I think that he's he's been a, a real positive force in, in television. So it's great to see his, his company winning its first big commission. I think this is a really good idea with what's going on in the US with Obamacare has, has actually, on a low level, sparked a debate over here around public health. And, and it's good to see that we're not shying away from that. And we're saying, well, we've got the NHS. Is it working well for us? Is it doing the right thing for us? But the thing I'll be particularly interested in is what they're going to call it, because I think we've got a working title here. Yeah, the cost of living is the working title. Yeah, I worry about if we're going to see a benefit street situation here. I think that that might be the, the situation. And, and it's it's going to be interesting to see what they're going to name it and if it's going to be a bigger show because of the title being... But Channel 4 would argue that Benefit Street was a stellar title because it brought viewers in, no? I, th- I think that Benefit Street as a show was a very good show because it, it did a good job of the debate around benefits. But I think it was overshadowed by the title and people having a debate about a title of a TV programme rather than a, a debate about the content of the show. There was the suggestion that it might be Patient Idol where uh, <laughs> the viewers get to get to choose who gets the treatment and who doesn't, which uh, they've sort of uh, said isn't necessarily the case. It's a cracking idea and, and speaking to um, Ralph Lee from, from Channel 4 yesterday about their you know controversy is, is they want to stir up a thing. They want to stir this up. They want to, to cause a, a debate and, and it, actually at the end of this four-part series they're actually going to do a live debate um, very similar to to the way that the Benefit Street um, had. So they want to cause a bit of trouble. They want to cause a bit of noise with this. As Faraz says, it'd be interesting what they they call it. Yeah, and quickly, uh, just an honourable mention must go to Channel 4's new three-part series, Shed of the Year. (laughs) <laughs> which which is exactly what it says on the tin, I think. Any views on this, guys? Well, it's, I think it's, it's easy to laugh about it, but when you actually read the story behind it, it, it looks genuinely fascinating. The fact that this competition exists... You're a shed man. Uh, it's not that I'm a shed man, but the fact that this competition exists is like, well, that sounds like great Channel 4 factual Ironically, not being made by shed, unfortunately. No, not being made by shed, but it's going to go behind the scenes at what Channel 4 describes as the prestigious shed of the year competition, and it's all going to be overseen by Amazing Spaces presenter George Clark. So you can sort of see where they're going can't you I, look, I think it's i think we need to have more fun documentaries out there and, and this feels like it's one of them not everything needs to be really serious and and create a, a firestorm of prime minister's question times having something that's fun and watchable is really important and this feels like it's going to bring out some really eccentric great contributors and... i bet my shed's better than faraz's shed <laughs> i haven't got a shed i'm not you know I li- <laughs> have you got a shed i you live in a shed right. you can oh, you right. can okay. you can leave this shed off to, <laughs> to another to time out. guys uh, <laughs> that's the news for this week uh, my thanks to faraz osmond peter white and stephen price Next up, we journey to the blood-soaked fields of France 1915 for what the BBC describes as one of the First World War's greatest untold stories. Set in a temporary hospital close to the front line of trench warfare, BBC One's The Crimson Field follows the lives and loves of nurses and doctors as they treat often mortally wounded soldiers. Three episodes in, the BBC in-house drama has received mixed reviews, but has won over viewers, so far averaging a consolidated audience of 7.4 million. There's no doubting its significance either, forming one of the centrepieces of the BBC's year-long commemoration of World War I's centenary. Before bringing in writer and executive producer Sarah Phelps, here's matron Grace Carter, played by Hermione Norris, meeting her new recruits in the first episode. Flora Marshall. Yes, matron. Rosalie Berwick. Yes, matron. Marshall, how old are you? Oh, I'm nearly 24, matron. No, you're not. I am. I just look very young for my age. I always have. 
Even when I was a baby, I looked young for my age. You're wearing scent. I'm not matron. It's just rose water. Were you not taught the rules concerning conduct and deportment? Yes, matron, of course. But you don't think they apply to you? No, matron, of course they do. I'm speaking to Marshall. Of course they do, matron. Wash it off, please. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Tell us about the, the project's inception. What drew you to it? The project started when I was asked to read a book called The Roses of No Man's Land by Lynn MacDonald, who is an eminent historian on all aspects of the First World War. And The Roses of No Man's Land, as the title might suggest, is a history of the nurses of the First World War, this, uh, the military nurses, the civilian nurses, and the nurses of the voluntary aid detachment. About ten pages in, I felt that rather sick shiver when you know You've kind of found a story because I thought I knew a fair bit about the First World War and I'd seen a lot of films and I'd done a lot of reading and I'd read a lot of poetry and I thought I knew something, that kind of uh, collective understanding of what the First World War is. But it never occurred to me to ask who were the women who nursed those men. It never occurred to me to go, well, who were they? So it was a bit of a eureka moment, was it? Well, it was just that sort of thing where I always felt like somebody was battering me round the face going, you idiot. These tiny, you know, these hospitals, they became canvas cities and I've seen photos of famous hospitals at Etap in France and they stretch as far as the eye can see and there's something really exciting about that and I think people sort of go oh it's a little bit precinct it's all about the medics it's casualty 1915 or well actually no it's not what it is is Deadwood it's a it's that feeling of that pioneer town you are on the frontier of the old and the new this is the world poised on the brink of change and this hospital, this canvas city, is the place where this change is happening. So it sounds like you researched quite intensely for the project. I started reading and then before I'd even finished The Roses of No Man's Land, I started writing and I kept being sort of bombarded with lots and lots and lots of research. And in the in the end, I just, I just didn't read it because... I, you know, they had to be my characters and it had to be my world. And and very, very quickly it sort of grew up out of no... You imagine a field and you imagine a tent being put up and you imagine star shells exploding just over on the horizon, the sea and the pine woods, and your characters and you're there. So while I was continuously writing, I was picking up bits of research here, there and everywhere. I mean, it feels to me like one of the things the BBC is trying to achieve uh, with the whole of their centenary work is to dispel some of the myths about World War One. When did you find out that it was going to be part of sort of commemoration process for World War One? And, and was that a daunting thing, did you, th- did, you, did you think? Well, this may sound really, really thick, but, you know, you, you sort of said, well, obviously, because, you know, 2014 will be the centenary. And I sort of went, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, because it will be the centenary. But actually thinking about the centenary, I honestly sort of th- didn't think about that until someone said it'll begin that commemorative process. It'll be one of the first things that's shown. And at which point I went a bit sort of dry in my mouth and kind of a bit wobbly. Why was that? Because of the respo- because it's a huge the responsibility. thing. It's a huge thing. But when you're talking about the responsibility and the kind of being daunted, there is nothing more daunting than the blank page. Nothing more daunting than the blank page. That's what's daunting. But yeah, you do feel the responsibility and you you are aware that there are very, very, very many eyes on you. And what have you made of the response to the to the drama? Um well some people have liked it and some people have hated it and said it's shit and I should be shot and bloody bloody blah but and Do you um, get used to that as a writer? No, of course you don't. It's horrible. But in many ways I just sort of go, 
what can you do? You can't please all of the people all the time. If I tried to please all of the people all the time, you'd please nobody. The other thing is that you are also aware of 9 o'clock BBC One that there is also something that comes with it being a BBC One show and there's a certain amount of expectation, but there's also a huge... To my mind, there's also a certain amount of prejudice. It's politicised because it's a BBC, because it's BBC One, because it's nine o'clock and because eyes are on the BBC all the time. It just is. It's just the way things are. So there's a certain amount of, oh, look, here they go again, screwing it up or they're dumbing down or they're dumbing up or they're too intellectual or they're not intellectual enough. You can't do everything. You can't delight everyone and make everyone go wow isn't the BBC this fantastic institution because there was going to be people that go that's shit they're shit we don't like the way they're run we don't like what the BBC stands for therefore anything etc does that inhibit you no when you're writing or no, do, you, I don't. do you try I don't. to put that to one side and no I honestly honestly don't all I care about and this sounds slightly sort of sociopathic in a way I suppose I only care about my world and my characters are they telling the story and are they if not you know, lots of people have said, oh, it's not a true historical representation. Well, we had advisors looking over every single word of that. Historical advisors, nursing advisors, military advisors. You sort of fight your corner. You know, so it's not a documentary. It's a drama. It's about people's lives. And you, know, you could say, well, that didn't happen. Well, how do you know you weren't there? Yeah, you have to accept there's an element of fiction about it. Well, well you know, but in, in, in as much as I've been... Able to, I want. I imagine what it would be like to be a woman then. What it would be like to be Rosalie, who's only 30, 31, 32 years old, and it's already considered an old maid and finished and done for. And that this, the call to arms for women to volunteer, was an opportunity to not be a laughing stock, to not be the, the entirely redundant and embarrassing spinster, doing good works and watching her life tick away. And I imagine what it would like to be Flora or Grace, who's. Yeah. You know, the military nurses then, they were highly professional, elite band of women. And I mean, you've got this really strong female ensemble cast, haven't yeah. you? And Charlotte Moore, the BBC One controller, has spoken about getting more women on screen, getting more women behind the camera, Good. Uh, writing. Is that something you feel strongly about? Yeah, of course I do. I'm a woman. I'm not <laughs> going to say, no, that's a rubbish idea. What's really exciting, and I think that there is, there is a sea change, and I think that one of the things is that women perhaps who would have been considered less visible or invisible or relegated to doing, you know, mumsy roles or slightly background roles after the age of 40. You see them much more much more there on screen. And I'm thinking of, you know, Last Tango in Halifax, for example. But then again, you think about Jed Mercurio's line of duty with Keely Hawes' character, Lindsay Denton, an extraordinary role for woman, extraordinary role for woman, written by Jed. Who's you know? Last time I looked, is very much a (laughs) is a man. (laughs) Is very much a chap. So I think it's much more um, that you know we're in a we're in a situation, or it seems to be where 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 just there is a sea change. Just before we move on quickly, do you think there's the scope to do more of the Crimson Field? Oh, bloody hope so. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't even got started. I have not even got started. But it's something you're thinking about, We're own, the BBC's thinking about. Well, yeah, they're thinking about it and hopefully they'll make a decision that will probably make some people go, why are they doing that again? It was absolute rubbish. Well, don't watch it. And I think the biggest thing for me is how many people are, you know, that friends of mine who and sort of family members and that there's a larger community. People are responding to it. Yeah, it's getting a big audience. And uh, just the Crimson Field aside, you're also busy adapting J.K. Rowling's first adult novel, The Casual Vacancy. How's, yeah. that, how's that going? It's going It's going really well. It's a difficult novel to adapt because it is really 
broad and really sprawling and it takes in this, you know, huge town and, you know, I'm getting there. I'm sort of halfway. I've, I've broken off my deadline to come here and I have to go home and I'll be bashing out the last episode, the first draft We're of the last episode. You. You're distracting me. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel most aggrieved. But it's going, it's going really well. There is a, a great big beating heart and, a, and an anger about what's going on, a real anger about what's going on in Britain today. How closely are you working with Rowling? I've met her, we had a good chat, and we and like the proper lady that she is, she's letting me get on with it. Is she? Yeah, she's a very generous person. So she's not she's not looming over your shoulder at any point. No, not, no, not at all. But she'd be. I'm sure there'll be. I'm sure there'll be discussions. But it's writer to writer. She feels very strongly about her book. I feel very strongly about you know what I'm what I'm doing with it. And we, there'll be there'll be discussions. But she's a generous person and she knows what it is to sit in a room looking at a blank page. And there was news this week that HBO are on board. That must be exciting. Um, or daunting. Yeah, <laughs> again, <laughs> again, great. They have come with a great reputation for having produced and made some really, really great drama. That's that's fabulous. But let's, you know, yeah, so you've got to get it down on paper. I've got to get it down. I've got to get it down on paper. Let everyone else. Well, we that wish out. you all the best with the casual Thank vacancy you. and with the rest of Crimson Field, which continues at nine pm Sunday on BBC One. Finally, this episode, get yourself comfortable on the talking TV sofa as we look at what will be beamed into the nation's living rooms over the coming weeks. Along for the ride are Faraz Osman and Peter White, and our first stop is ITV's heavily marketed new three-part drama, Prey. The Red Production Company series stars John Sim as detective-turned-fugitive Marcus Farrow, who goes on the run in an effort to clear his name of a brutal crime. Here's a clip of the moment where it all starts to go wrong for DC Farrow, when he discovers his wife is seeing another man. Hang on. That's not where Finn got his iPad from, is it? What? Some bastard tried to buy my kids. Oh, God. So listen to yourself. Right? Listen to yourself. No one, no one is buying the kids, okay? No one. Just tell me it's not that. That prick. That. John. John's actually. It is him, isn't it? Oh my God, it is him! Treats me real. Oh my God, why tell me? That I don't know him when I do know him. What? And he's a twat! Because I'll tell you why, because I knew exactly how you would react. Oh, exactly. shit! Right, you need to go. You need to go. This is my house. Pete, billboards all around London for this one. Is it going to live up to the hype? Yeah, it's wonderful. And I say that as someone who, uh, until Broadchurch, hasn't really enjoyed a lot of ITV drama. So, no, I thought it was I thought it was fantastic. It was really well written. Um, and John uh, Sim is, is fantastic. And, and you know, it, it, Chris Lunt, the, the, the writer, a uh, sort of new t- new talent. Yeah, uh, newcomer. Newcomer does sort of, you know, uh, without giving him too much, uh, it does seem like it might be the new Chris Chibnall. <laughs> well, that is a that is a moniker that I'm sure he'd like to live up to. Yeah. What did you make of it, Faraz? I'm, I'm going to put this biro over here because that's making me feel a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I uh, I I really really enjoyed it. I think obviously John is is such a huge talent. You think he's one of the greatest assets that we have in British acting at the moment. He's so, so watchable, isn't he? He's, he's brilliant. He's really really brilliant, and um, it's great to see more of him. It's a great explosive start. To me, it lagged a little bit in the first couple of parts, and I was a little bit worried that this was going to be another 
broad church clone, you know, let's put a grey filter over everything and make everything depressing. But the last half is really ramps up again. And, and I'm actually really looking forward to seeing the next couple of episodes. Yeah, I wasn't sure after the first part, but then it completely got me by the end. I'm surprised you felt it like, I mean, there's a behind the scenes feature in broadcast this week where producer Tom Sherry explained that Prey has twice the number of scenes uh, of a normal 60 minute ITV drama. Which is, I mean, so they're, they're ramming it in. Yeah, I think yeah. that I think that t- when you get towards the end, you know, it is really pacey. It's got all of the right elements in it, and you want to keep, keep with it. I I just was a little bit worried that we were getting into this. I don't know what it. We just it just didn't feel like it was pacey enough. Because maybe because the opening is so so out there and it's it's great. And I would I, what I would say is I was watching. And I did wonder if you missed the first ten minutes of the show. Are you going to have real problems following what's going on? Because it's it's so essential to to the script and storyline. Not suggesting that people shouldn't miss the beginning of shows, but you know it happens yeah. with scheduling programming, and and I think that it's important to make sure that you do capture that bit because it really sets up the whole thing. It's interesting because ITV have the, the one of the trailers for the series is actually the the, the opening scene. Well, that's very smart of them. <laughs> <laughs> so they're try, they're trying to make sure people aren't missing it. Clearly, yeah. So that's the that's the crux. And do you think this has got the potential to be as big as Broadchurch, Pete? Yeah, I mean, nothing will will be as, as big as Broadchurch over the next few years, just because that was such a such a hit. But um, no, it's a really neat idea. It's a, you know essentially a, a, a British remake of of The Fugitive. It's uh, it's wonderful, and I think it will be a massive hit for them both in the UK and internationally. You liked it so much, you've watched the second episode. Yeah, so yeah, have I, actually. yeah. I'm 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 going to go home and watch uh, episode three now, uh, <laughs> and, and hopefully uh, spoil the ending. Fantastic. Well, we'll move on. Prey uh, makes its ITV debut on Monday the 28th of April at 9pm. Last but not least, we have uh, BBC One comedy pilot Monks. Forming part of the channel's revived comedy playhouse season, it stars stand-up Sean Walsh as Gary Woodcroft, a benefits cheat who seeks redemption by becoming a monk. The BBC in-house studio sitcom is billed as warm-hearted fare and has plenty of comedy pedigree running through its cast, including the Vicar of Dibley's James Fleet and Green Wing's Mark Heap. Here are the monks assessing the damage after Woodcroft's bell-ringing antics go awry. This is very serious, Gary. A monastery must have a bell to call the monks to prayer. It's an absolute essential. It's like habits or or Bibles or... Soda stream? Yes. No. (laughs) We have enough money to pay for it, Father. Dominic, I very much doubt it. Uh, Francis? Let me see. Our uh, current balance is... Four. Four. I suppose that's the downside to a vow of poverty. The poverty. Stony silence in the studio. (laughs) Pete, you love this one, right? I thought this was one of the worst television shows I've seen in a very, very long time. It (laughs) is the least funny comedy I have ever seen. And I didn't particularly dislike Sean Walsh uh, coming into this. I thought his stand-up was was quite good. Um, It feels like they're trying to be Father Ted, except they haven't got the writing chops. Um, I just thought it was dreadful, absolutely dreadful. Anything that particularly wound you up? Well, these studio sitcoms are, are really tough to do anyway to get right. So I just think they haven't they haven't sort of found the beat. Um, in the, uh, the the closest thing I can think of is in extras the uh, the show within the show when the whistle uh, when the whistle blows. It's sort of like that the Andy uh, Andy Willman character that Ricky Gervais plays. It's just dreadful. Faraz, were you equally appalled? It did kind of make me want to take a vow of celibacy. Silence. <laughs> um, I'm I'm no expert in in scripted comedy and um, uh, studio-based comedy. And I, th- I think that it is a really tough nut to crack, especially if you want to do it for a mainstream family audience. 
but this just didn't work. It didn't didn't land anywhere, and you kind of really wondered where this was going. It made me want to watch Sister Act, which is maybe a good thing. Um, but it just it the, the jokes weren't funny. It felt really dated. And one of the things that was, that was really odd is that they had some um, a few beats of special effects in there, um, which with a studio audience, you have a studio audience laughing at special effects, which are so clearly done in post. And that breaks that illusion of, of you know, people watching and, and the canned laughter gets almost more jarring as a result of that, because it's clear that that kind of laughter isn't associated with what they're seeing in a studio because you've got special effects. So the whole thing just feels really confused. And it's just it's a real painful watch I... they've been trying it for a few years and 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 i gather that james corden was originally lined up to play that the right? character that that sean walsh ends up playing so i mean perhaps that could have been worse but but i mean there's such a glut of religious comedies if you look at rev and yeah. you mentioned father ted and vicar of dibley etc etc so i'd understand why they why they feel there's there's fresh there's fresh territory here we don't need any more <laughs> there are a couple of quite offensive jokes in there as well and I think that when you've got which like, ones do you think the, well there's there's a joke about the Church of England which felt unnecessary and I think that when you've got a, when you've got a show like The Vicar of Dibley where it's consistently good you know you can get away with those jokes because it feels like it's it's within a, a mix of, of other things going on but they're you know when you've got some throwaway gags and the rest of it isn't funny you start cringing really hard with jokes that are a bit more controversial and, and don't land at all and, and so I think that there's a real issue here with doing a religious comedy that isn't funny um father ted was obviously very very controversial but it was also incredibly funny so you got away with quite a lot um and here it it's just not it's just not doing what it needs to do but mark keep in it mark keeps in it he's one of my favorite comedy actors uh, here he plays an angry monk what's not to like about that and mark keep playing an angry monk <laughs> well I just watch it and it is i mean the return of angus dayton really it's uh, i mean oh it, yeah he's playing is, some is, sort of vatican high priest doesn't yeah, he yeah the most cringeworthy performance i've seen in a while <laughs> so we don't think it's going to get past pilot stage i really hope not for us <laughs> leave it in the abbey <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, monks will air on tuesday the 13th of april at 10 35 p.m uh, and that's your lot for another edition of talking tv if you've enjoyed what you've heard or fancy weighing in on the debate why not leave your comments on the broadcast website and don't forget to tell your colleagues about us the more the merrier we'll be back in a fortnight but until then i've been jake Cantor, and the producer was the marvelous matt hill goodbye for now You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.